Welcome to another edition of the Helipod. And you know what's fun? It's fun when you get to catch up with one of your old buddies. From uh, all the way on the other side of the country, Brian Westbrook, one of the great Eagles running backs of all time, one of the great Eagles players of all time, kind enough to uh, join us on this Tuesday. B. West, what's up, man? Hey, man, it's Tuesday. It's free agency. Uh, really, the most exciting time in the NFL for me is free agency. Obviously, we have the Super Bowl, but free agency, the draft time, seeing guys move around is pretty cool. You know, when I think about it, we had all season long, we saw the great parts of teams. We saw, hey, you know, they have great receivers. They have a great offensive line. We also saw some of the holes. And now we get to see the teams that are aggressive and are ready to fill those holes. And so it's pretty exciting for me. Well, all everybody wanted to talk about before free agency started, Brian, was how much less money teams were going to spend this year. Uh, last year, teams entered the new league year uh, with $1.3 billion to spend. This year, $420 million. So yeah. roughly a third of what they had last year to spend. But we have seen some big spenders early on the first couple of days of free agency, just two days in. Um, and, and the Patriots, to me, are the headliners. They're the second biggest spenders all time behind the Dolphins last year in free agency. And this is very unpatriot-like. We don't see Bill Belichick do this very often, but they are signing all kinds of pieces. Yeah. Uh, you know, Matthew Judon was the first big one. And now they have not one, but two tight ends, a couple of wide receivers. Has that been the biggest surprise to you so far? Well, you know, I don't even know if it's a surprise. I mean, because when I think about it, and I, and obviously this amount of spending, you're, you're a little bit shocked by. But then when you think a little bit deeper, you're saying, okay, last year the Patriots, if you're Bill Belichick, a guy that's been around for a long time in the NFL, has a bunch of wins, a bunch of championships, six rings, you're saying, okay, last year was embarrassing. And they have to get better quickly. And he also mentioned, you know, prior to the draft and really during the season that they sold out to get that last Super Bowl. They did everything they could to make that work. And when that happens, usually you got to pay the cost. You got to pay the cost. In these last couple of years, they've paid the cost. They, they weren't very good. This year was the first opportunity where they had a bunch of holes on their team. We saw that throughout the season. And now they have money. Now they have the ability to go out and fill those holes. And when I look at it, I'm looking at Bill Belichick trying to rebuild a defense, trying to say, listen, I remember when back in 02 and 03 and 04, we were built on a tough, hard-nosed physical defense, guys that can play a bunch of positions. I can move guys around and say, hey, this week we're running the 3-4. Next week, next week we're running the 4-3. The week after that, we're going to be blitzing all the time. The next week we're not going to be blitzing. So he went out and got a bunch of guys that can do a bunch of different things, and he's building character. He's building that culture back in New England. So when I think about it, initially, I was a little surprised. But afterwards, I, you know, probably last night sometime, I'm saying, you know what? Bill Belichick has an idea. He knows what type of players that he needs, and he's gone out and tried to fulfill those roles. It's been pretty cool to watch. Well, you talk about the defense. I'm, I'm focused on the offense, too, right? They only had four touchdown catches from wide receivers last year. They had a couple of young tight ends they had to play because they didn't have anybody else. So they go sign Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry at tight end. They have Nelson Aguilar, who you're familiar with from his days mm -hmm. with the Eagles, and Kendrick Bourne at wide receiver. They traded for Trent Brown last week to help stabilize the offensive line. They, of course, lost yep. Joe Tooney. But that's a lot of new weapons. And then Cam Newton's back as well. Who knows if he's going to have any competition at that quarterback spot. So finally, Cam has some weapons. I'm going to be curious to see what he can do this year. 
But let's not forget what he didn't do last year. Yeah, he, he ran the ball, but he only had eight touchdown passes. In yeah. this passing league, you can't win with just eight touchdown passes. Do you anticipate seeing a different Cam last than we saw last year, or do you feel like he is indeed on the back nine of his career? You know, there's a couple of things about New England as a team, and offensively and defensively, really. You say they're going to be multiple. They're going to do – they're going to run the football. They're going to pass the football. They're going to do whatever is best um, in that particular game. That's something totally different than what Cam has done in Carolina throughout his entire season, his entire career. And you add in that he had COVID. You add in that he didn't have a lot of time in the offseason with with the coronavirus and things like that going on. So when you look at it, all in all, it was a tough season for Cam. He didn't look like himself. He's coming off of surgery as well. So he had a lot of things against him. And he kind of just, you know, just didn't look good all all year, right? And so now year two, you you bring him back with Josh McDaniels. You give him some more weapons. You give him some offensive linemen. You get him some tight ends to throw the football to. Now you're saying, okay, offensively, we're going to run the football. We're going to be a threat every single time. We're going to play great defense. And now I don't have to score 30 points. Now we're not asking Cam to go out there and just throw the football around the yard all game long. And I think this year you'll get a totally different Cam Newton than you got last year. The question is going to remain, how healthy can he still be? And can he be accurate passing and efficient throwing the football? We didn't see that last year. I mean, he has a whole offseason to try to fix it. When we talk about some of the best athletes in our league, and I certainly put Cam in that category, they have the ability to get better from year to year. We know that he's going to put in the work. Now it's all about Cam. How much can he get better by the time September rolls around? You know, I, I would never bet against Cam Newton because we've seen it time in and time again that he can get better. He just needs time and to be able to develop. And then I think he'll do that this offseason. Let's talk about a division that you're familiar with, the NFC East. You can see your Eagles jersey hanging there uh, on the wall behind you. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he is Fitz magic and Fitz tragic, uh, seemingly week to week. You don't know who you're going to get, but it's going to be exciting. And you know, I, I'm I'm a DC guy as you are. Grew up in the DMV, still uh, still love the burgundy and gold there. What what did you think about that signing when you heard that he was going to end up in Washington on a one year deal? Well, everybody on the NFC East, you better get your secondary ready. You better get your D line ready because when Ryan Fitzpatrick is under center. He's going to be whipping around. He's going to throw the ball to his team, and it may be a touchdown. He may throw it to your team a little bit too. But whatever it is, it's going to be exciting. Um, I I think it's a a pretty good signing for Ron Rivera. It's going to give Taylor Heineke someone to push him a little bit. And and listen, Taylor Heineke only played, what, one game in that playoff. And I thought he played pretty well for a guy that hadn't really played all season long. And so uh, I think he's going to give them another option. And at this point, when you have that type of defense that Washington has, uh, you just need a guy that can go out there and get you some points. And I think uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is one of those guys. It's exciting football. It's a little dangerous from time to time. And I know Ron Rivera is not one of these guys that's going to tolerate turnovers, but he's also going to be very excited. The potential of Ryan Fitzpatrick kind of throwing the ball uh, some sideline to sideline up and down the football field. And, and listen, when you talk about teams, you need guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick that have been around as you build a culture, as you build, uh, character of your football team you need guys that have been around especially at that position for a long time in the NFL yeah I, I think he's just a great team guy and a great addition to your locker room is he the second best quarterback in the division now Dak is number one um 
we don't know who the, the Eagles. We think we, the Eagles are going to go with Jalen Hurts, and you know we, we we know what's going on in New York. So he probably is the second best quarterback in the division. Which you know, it, listen, it, this division has this past year just didn't look very good. Hasn't looked like the NFC so the NFC East of old. And so uh, it's not really saying that much to say that he's the second best, but at the same time, um, we'll see how we'll see how this division kind of shakes up. I'm interested to see how much better the Giants can be. I'm interested to see if the, the the Cowboys can finally put it together instead of being these paper champs that they've been over the last four or five years, where they've looked great on paper, and then you get into the games, you're like, who, who is this team? Because this is not <laughs> the team that I thought I saw on their roster. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how this thing kind of shakes out. What about your guys, man? Is that is that the right move not to not to bring in any competition for Jalen and just kind of hand them the job if that's in, indeed what they what they plan on doing? You know, I, I was thinking about this thing, and, and now I don't know that it's an apples to apples comparison, but I'm I started to feel like you know you know what just happened in New England. We're talking about they struggled for the last couple of years, then they go out I mean, and they struggled be, only because. They went all out for the, for that last championship. They right. went all out. They tried to make it all work. They knew that their time with Tom Brady was coming to an end. So they did everything they could to make it work. And, you know, they paid the price. These last two years, they paid the price. Not a lot of money in salary cap. Not a lot of talent on that team. And for the Eagles, when they won a Super Bowl in 2017, they went all out to make that happen. And, you know, they played, you know, they did okay these last couple of years. But, you know, last year, 4-11-1, that's just not good enough to, to even come close. And so now I feel like they're in a situation where they're paying the piper a little bit. They're paying for all those contracts, those bad drafts, those bad contracts that they've, um, that they've kind of signed guys up to. And this year is going to be tough for them. And Jalen Hurts, you, you put a bunch of talent around them, but you're saying, okay, guys have to perform. perform. Jalen Rager, the number one pick last year, the first round pick last year, he has to perform to a different level than he performed last year. He, he just was okay last year. And in this league, if you want to be good, you have to have your draft picks perform. Unfortunately for the Eagles, they, they haven't had any of their draft picks perform very much over the last couple of years. And when you talk about, do you want to bring in competition? Uh, Jeffrey Lurie, the owner said, listen, Jalen Hurts is our guy. We're going to move forward, putting pieces around him. It doesn't seem like they're going to put any competition in place at all. And I, I think they kind of got a sour taste in their mouth from the competition word at the quarterback position from last season when Carson Wentz was there as their franchise guy. And then he was upset because of the drafting of Jalen Hurts in the, in the second round. Do you think that's the right move though? And I totally understand where Jeffrey Lurie is coming from, you know, having soured on that uh, competition because listen, Carson Wentz did not respond well. It, it didn't no. go well. Um, but, but now you're already saying, okay, we have our quarterback we're probably not going to draft a quarterback in the first round if there's not going to be competition. I feel like that's tipping your hand a little bit. Well, I think for him, for Jeffrey Lurie to come out and say that we're, you know, we're going to move forward with Jalen Hurts, you certainly tipped your hand to all the other teams that have put a potentially traded up to try to right. get in that, that number six spot. So there's no doubt about it. The other side to that coin is you're trying to tell your young quarterback, we have confidence and faith in you. And now you have to go work your butt off this offseason with the guys that you have on the roster to get better. So, I mean, there are, you know, six in one hand, a half a dozen in the other. Uh, I probably would have preferred to keep my cars close to the vest and not say anything and, and really talk to Jalen Hurts behind 
behind closed doors. But, you know, owners kind of do their own thing. You know, you talk about bringing in a veteran. When I think about it, I say, okay, let's say Jalen Hurts is just not the guy. Let's say he goes out and has a terrible season. You were 4-11-1 this year. You don't have a bunch of salary cap room. Your team is, has a bunch of aging veterans. You don't have a bunch of good guys. If Jalen Hurst goes out and fails this year, then you'll be drafting at the top of the draft again next year. You're going to have another bite of this quarterback apple next year. So that would probably be the reason why I wouldn't bring in a veteran. And here's the other part. If you bring in a vet, and let's say it's a guy, let's say it was Ryan Fitzpatrick before Washington picked him up, you're really, you're pushed to try to put that guy in. If your second-year quarterback, Jalen Hurst, starts to struggle, you want to start getting some wins underneath your, your belt. If you're the first-year coach, Nick Sirianni, you're saying, okay, you know what? We're going to go with, uh, you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick because our, our second-year quarterback's not playing very well. You're pushing to get that guy in the game, and I don't know that that helps your team in the long run. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting move. We'll see how it turns out. I think it was the best move that, that Jeffrey Lurie could make. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if they do bring in a veteran. Jacoby Brissett has been a guy, obviously, that, that mm-hmm. Ariane is very familiar with um, that could end up there in Philadelphia. And, and, and Brissett can certainly help teach Hurts the offense. I know they brought in uh, a good friend of Jalen Hurts to be the quarterback coach. And so they're trying to develop this kid to be a, a guy that can run an offense. And they're going to build an offense around him. I know Nick Sirianni said, listen, we're not tied to anything. We had a different offense when we had Andrew Luck, had a different offense when we had Brissett, had a different offense when we had Phillip Rivers. It's a lot of similar concepts, but a different way of running it. And we're going to go out there and put the best offense in play for Jalen Hurts. And hopefully they can find something that can make him successful there in Philadelphia. All right. Let's get into B-West career, man. This is, uh, this is a kid who grew up in – in Maryland, just like I did, not too far. I was in Montgomery County. You were in uh, PG County. Did you yep. grow up rooting for the Redskins at the time and the Wizards and the Caps in Maryland and Georgetown? Were you a DMV guy through and through, or did you were your allegiances elsewhere? No, I was a DMV guy through and through. Washington was my team. I remember the Hogs back in the day and uh, the wide receivers, Art Monk and and and, and, and Gary. So, I mean, they, they had so many good players, Doug yeah. Williams and all those guys, B. Mitch back in the day. Uh, so I, I certainly was a DMV guy. And the book, you remember the Washington Bullets at the Cap Center over there oh, in yeah. Landover? We used to go to see the games with my parents uh, when we I was much, much younger. Um, back then was the Orioles that we, we would go see and support them as well. So, yeah, I was a, a DMV guy through and through. Just wanted our local teams to do to do well. Um, I remember the Super Bowl, the Redskins won back in the day. So I, I remember watching and well, we used to go over to my uncle's house all the time, and he was a big-time Washington football team supporter. So we were always there just watching games on Sunday and watching how they played the games. It was old school. John Riggins, you know, <laughs> four yards in a cloud of dust. I'm going to punch you in the mouth type of football. It, it was enjoyable to watch. Uh, the game has changed. Times have changed in, in D.C. As, as a whole. But um, it was an exciting time, especially growing up in that area. And you talk about passionate fans. And I know Philadelphia has passionate fans. But back in the day, the old Washington Redskins fans were, were a passionate bunch, uh, people that supported their football team. And, and at the time, the team was doing well also. Yeah, I remember going to my first game at, at RFK Stadium. And, and uh, the first game I went to was a preseason game 
Babe Laufenberg was playing quarterback for Washington yep. and led them to a come from behind win in a preseason game. And nobody remembers that unless you're there and unless you're like me and you were, you know, 10, <laughs> 11 years old, whatever it was. But RFK used to rock. You yep. could physically feel that stadium shake. Did you mm-hmm. have, were you ever able to go to a game at RFK or was it until they moved to Landover? Uh, I, I went to a couple at RFK and this was this one I was really, really young. So it probably, I probably didn't get to a game that I can remember until they moved to Landover at, yeah. at that point. Yeah. You're so you come from a super athletic family. Obviously your brother, brother played for Washington. I covered him mm-hmm. when he was there. Um, but your dad was a, was a minor league baseball player. Is that right? Yeah. So my dad, you know, he got drafted out of high school uh, he's from Massachusetts. He was like, you know, I'm, I want to go to college. His brother was in college. So he went to Union College up uh, up in New York, Schenectady, New York. And, you know, he played baseball. He was drafted again after he got out of college. He played baseball and football. There was, a, was in the Hall of Fame up there at that little small school up there. And, you know, after he was done, you know, he didn't have the focus. He wasn't as focused on you know, getting to the major leagues the way that I was kind of focused on football, and which is a great learning lesson. This was a great learning lesson for me. Um, and he, he just kind of gave up baseball at that point. Really, really good athlete. My uncle played at that Holy Cross, played basketball there. But yeah, athletic family, uh, you know, just grew up playing sports. You know, back in the day, where they, before video games, we were outside playing baseball, football, basketball. That's all we wanted to do outside in the street, outside in the in the yard, just throwing. I don't know if you remember this game. It's called throwback tackle. So you throw the ball back over your head, and whoever catches it, you're trying to score. So you're yep. trying to run over five or six people just to score, which is what we used to do every single day. And of course, we would be at the basketball court every single day as well. But I, I, as I remember my childhood, those were the good days. Those were the good days. You come home with the when the lights come on, you take a shower, and you're exhausted from playing sports all day long. I wish my kids here, we live in Brooklyn. I wish my kids here had that same experience. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same way. We used to go out in the street and just play, just run routes in the street and catch it right before, you know, toe tap before you'd hit the curb. And the game we always played, uh, B-West, was was 500, where you would throw the ball up and there'd be like three or four of you. And it was just, it was like a Hail Mary every play, right? You caught a number and first one of 500 wins. that, that uh, That was what I remember. And then, of course, I mean, just, just tackle football in the backyard. I mean, that's it. That, that's that's, that's it. got better. I mean, I can't, you know, my kids are playing video games and yeah. on iPads and, and TikTok and Snapchat. And that's right. That's right. Stop, man. You can't get them outside. The world has changed, man. The oh. world has changed. And they're, and I, I talked to my kid, I got three kids, seven, four, and two. And at their age, they're so much smarter than I was probably in high school. They have so much knowledge away of, of, of with these sure. computers and these iPads that I, ne- I still, to this day, still don't have. But that experience of being outside and enjoying life in that in that way, uh, my kids certainly don't have at this point. Well, so let me let me take you back a little bit. You were uh, in Fort Washington, right? That was your hometown? Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. so you ended up going to DeMatha, which yep. as, a, as a kid who went to Magruder High School, you know, down the road, I used to look at you guys at DeMatha and be like, man, that is awesome. Because it, for those of you who are listening and, and aren't familiar, uh, you know, with the DC area, DeMatha is a powerhouse. It's one of the great uh, sports programs in the country, known primarily for basketball. The program was built mm-hmm. by Morgan Wooten, but they also crank out Division One football prospects as well. And just a, it's in the Catholic League there in, in DC. There's awesome competition just down the road from the University of Maryland. 
And it's yep. been a great program for a long time. Did you play hoops there too? I did. So yeah, I, I was a three-year varsity player there for Morgan Wooten. Um, you know, played football there. I, I made the baseball team, but I quit like a like a crazy man my freshman year. I, I wish I'm seeing some of these baseball contracts and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you had to be crazy, but you, you know, when you're young, you're not thinking about that. You're 14 years old. You're thinking about you know, hanging out with your friends and doing different things like that. And so, yeah, I was able to play football and basketball. You know, it's funny because, you know, I grew up in Fort Washington playing Boys and Girls Club there. Great Boys and Girls Club program. Allentown Boys and Girls Club was the name of it. And I was really, really good. And then I go to DeMatha, which is, you know, 30 minutes away in Hyattsville, Maryland, uh, right down the street from the University of Maryland. In my freshman year, I mean, I went from being an All-American in Boys Club to a guy that couldn't even get on the field my freshman year. I'm literally, I played zero plays my freshman year. I mean, wow. I dressed for every game. Um, I, I used, I'm laughing about it now. I was crying about it at that point. <laughs> but we, we had white, red, white, and blue uniforms. So our, our, our base color was white. And so we would go to muddy, rain, soaked games. And after the game, I would have not one drop of mud on me, nothing. I mean, I would sit on the sideline and watch football all season long. And it really, truly, to this day, was one of the most humbling experiences in my life. It also taught me that there's always better competition out there than you. There's always guys that are better and you got to work just that much harder to be able to be on that level. Um, and so it taught me a, a valuable lesson. And along the way, um, you know, I, I learned that lesson and I, I put in a lot of work since then, but it was, it was a valuable lesson. And, and you're right. DeMatha is one of the best schools in the country. Um, one of the schools that has just great band program, has a great academic program, great basketball program. Uh, Morgan Wooten was the winningest, is the winningest high school coach in the history of high school basketball. And Bill McGregor was our football coach, uh, a coach that you talk about just cranking out, you know, players. Chase Young went to DeMatha. I yeah. mean, just great players that have played there, um, the up and down, um, you know, in all big schools, little schools in the NFL um, as well. Um, and just a place for me that I could kind of hone my skill, a place where I learned a lot, which I needed at that time. Who were who were some of the guys? Did you play with Forte and Bogans? Was that your was that your era there? Yeah. So my senior year, Joe Forte and Keith Bogans, um, they were junior, they were sophomores, uh, my, my senior year. So they're a couple of years younger than me. Now, now you gotta think, Forte was the number two player in the country, ended up going to North Carolina. He was a player of the year the, the last year there. Keith Bogans was number one player in the country at the time. Ended up going to Kentucky. He was the SEC player of the year his last couple of years there. Bogans ended up playing in the NBA something crazy, 13, 14 years. Long time, kind of bounced yeah. around. Never was that man, the guy, but he always was there, played a bunch of defense, which I'm, I'm shocked because he never played defense when we were in high school. He was there to score. That was it. I was there to play defense. He was there to score. Um, and Forte played a little bit overseas, but just really good players. We had another guy that played on our basketball team and football team named John Day Owens, ended up going to Notre Dame, played in the league for five or six years as well. So we had a talented roster. And, you know, in, in that league, you talk about the WCAC, the Catholic League that we played in, some of the best competition in the country, one of the best Catholic leagues in the country, just a, just a bunch of guys that were athletic that wanted to just get the best out of each other. So we played against each other in the summer in summer league. We played against each other in AAU. And then during the school season, we played against each other uh, as well. Very competitive. And it's just great sports, great high school sports down in that area. Oh, it's amazing. I remember when I was at um, the NBC station in Washington, um, 
I called Mike Jones, who, who as mm -hmm. you know, is the coach who replaced more yep. great, great coach. And I uh, wanted to come out and do a story on the basketball team. And there was a kid at the time who had committed to my alma mater, the university of Tennessee. His name was Josh uh, Selby, I believe. Yeah. And yep. Uh, Shelby or Selby. And it was Selby. Yeah. It was Selby. Yeah. And so I came out and he wasn't at practice that day. And so Mike said, Hey, there's this other really good story that you might want to check out. And it turned out it was Quinn cook and Victor Oladipo and their yep. friendship that they had had since before their Damatha days, Quinn's father had passed away. Uh, Victor was a good player. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. Also on that team was Jeremy Grant and yep. Jerry and Grant. They had four yep. NBA guys on one team. It was yep. insanity. Crazy. Great. I mean, just, just the amount of talent on that. And I remember watching those kids. I mean, they're much, much younger than me. I remember watching them and you're just amazed at how far, athleticism has come since I was there. And it wasn't much longer after me, maybe 10 years after me, just how much further athleticism has come. The things that they were doing in high school, when I was in high school, we weren't even thinking about that. We were watching NBA guys do that. Um, but Mike Jones was able to get the best out of those guys. But again, you know, they were all in a great program. Mike Jones taught those kids who, who was a coach with the, the, uh, the USA team, Mike Jones was a great player when I was in high school. Mike Jones was in college. So I remember watching him play in college, and he was a do dominant player at Old Dominion in college. And so it, it, it was just a great time. And, you know, they all – the saying is that iron sharpens iron. And when you're on those types of teams and you're practicing head-to-head -head against each other every single day, you just get better and better and better. And I watched those young guys get better every time that I went down there to see them play. It's just amazing to see the amount of talent that, that the math puts out. So I, I'm, you know, everybody probably knows this story, but you ended up going to Villanova. Mm -hmm. um, you tore, I think you tore your ACL th midway through your senior year at Dematha, right? Yeah. So in 1996, I was my junior year going into my senior it was the summertime. I, um, you know, in the senior year is the most important year uh, of high school for a lot of guys. You're making your, your highlight film. You're trying to figure out how to, uh, get colleges interested in you. And really, I had a really good junior year, one of the best juniors in the country, being recruited by all the schools in the country. And, and that summer, 90, 1996, I'll never forget it. Um, we're, we're practicing, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, backpedaling, and I step in a gopher hole and mm. tear my ACL. And at that point, you know, this is in 96, the ACL injury was like a year-long recovery. And all those schools that potentially wanted you we're like, nah, we don't want an injured guy. We can go recruit somebody else that's not injured and we don't want you. And so all those schools that had I me, mean, I had boxes and boxes of letters, handwritten letters from every coach in the country. They were like, yeah, we're not interested anymore. That, that dried up really quickly. And um, it ended up happening. I played four or five games my senior year on a torn ACL. I went in and they, they tried to scope it. And, you know, it was it really, it was probably 60% torn. They go in and try to scope it. And they do. I wear a knee brace to play four or five games. And then I try to string together a highlight tape. And usually your highlight tape is, is 10 minutes long. Mine is like two. Um, I have maybe maybe two minutes long. And I'm just now I'm putting different angles of the same play to make it look different. Um, it just that, that's how bad it was. And up to that point, University of Maryland had offered me a scholarship. And now this is not the University of Maryland that we see today. They were a bad program at that point. They just weren't very good. Um, the university, uh, Villanova University and, and University of Richmond offered me scholarship. Um, a couple of my good friends 
were running backs at the University of Richmond. Some of my best friends to today were, were, were headed to Richmond, and I wanted to go there, but I just didn't see any time, any time on the field for me there because they had so many talented players there. And, and enough, so I was kind of left to Villanova. And so still playing basketball, you know, I go into Morgan Wooten's office. He said, listen, um, you know, Villanova's coming to see you play today. I think they're going to offer you a scholarship. And I'm like, you know, again, I'm from the D.C. area. So I witnessed Villanova versus Georgetown back in the heyday, Patrick Ewing and, and those guys, Egg Pinkney and those guys, right? And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go play Big East basketball. I'm going to be a starting point guard on a Big East basketball team. And all my friends in DMV are going to love me. And so as I'm telling him this, I'm excited about it. He's, he's always giving me this look like, what the hell is he talking about? And I'm like, coach, what's up? He's like, no, no, no. They don't, they're not going to give you a basketball scholarship. You're okay in basketball. You're not that good in basketball. We're gonna, they're, they want to offer you a football scholarship. And my first question was like, I didn't even know that Villanova had a football program. Like, when did they get a football program? I didn't even know that they had one. And, you know, it was one of those things where um, you know, I got an opportunity. It wasn't about going to the NFL. It was just about getting a quality education, really. And, right. you know, just being able to play in college, getting someone to pay for my school. Um, and, and they gave me a scholarship. I go there and, and try to make the most of it. That, that, was, that was my whole purpose in college. They'll find a way to get a job, network and find a way to get a job after school. Um, and that was my thought process heading to Villanova. So you get there and I don't think you played a ton as a freshman. I mean, you didn't, you weren't sitting the whole time like you did as a freshman at the math, but you didn't, you didn't play a ton, did you? Yeah, you know, we were the number one team in the nation for about, you know, we were one day delay football. So we were number one team in the nation for about eight, nine weeks. Um, at the beginning, I played a little bit. Towards the end, I was basically starting. I wasn't starting the game, but I played a majority of the game okay. my freshman year. Um, so things worked out well towards the end of my freshman year uh, at Villanova, yeah. And, and, then, and then I think it's that sophomore season – I believe it was the opener for you guys where you played Pitt and you just torched him. You had like 428 all-purpose yards. And then all of a sudden you're on everybody's radar. Was that, was, was that, am I remembering yeah. accurately? Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. So when you go to one double A school, especially after the experience that I experienced with the torn ACL and all the other schools saying, we don't want you anymore. Now you have this chip on your shoulder. Now you're hungry. You're hunting that opportunity to go out there and play against the best competition. And so, you know, when we put Pitt on the schedule for the next season, now everyone in one double A thought that they should be going to a big school. Everybody thought that they should be going to Florida State and Oklahoma and Florida. And so, which probably wasn't true for any of us, really. None of us probably were good enough. Um, and so, but they put Pitt on our schedule. We're like, we're going to go up to Pittsburgh. We're going to beat them. And it just so happened that that day, coach put the ball in my hands a bunch of times, kickoff returns punt returns, running the ball, catching the ball out of the backfield. And it was just one of those days where it's hard to think that that's going to happen against that type of competition. Um, he had 400 and, you know, almost 450 yards all purpose, something crazy like that, four touchdowns. And now as a player, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe I got a chance at this. Maybe I have a chance. If I can play that well against that competition, maybe I have a chance to play in the NFL, but who knows? Well, we got to see what happens the rest of the season. And really, that was a catalyst for me for that season, just to go out there and let the chips fall right away. Just go out there and ball out, let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, that year I was an All-American. Things, things went really, really well for me. I put up a bunch of yards. Um, and, and the great thing about going to Villanova 
was that they found a way to put me in different positions that if I would have went to a bigger school, I probably would have played cornerback. I wouldn't have been a running back. I, if I, even if I was a running back, they wouldn't have put me in the slot to catch the football. They wouldn't have allowed me to, to run back kicks and return punts. But Villanova, because it was a smaller school, put me in a situation where I could be successful in a lot of different things. And I was able to really craft my game to what I became in the NFL. Well, you had not one, but two thousand thousand seasons, thousand yards rushing, thousand yards receiving. Um, I mean, you were Marshall Falk, Roger Craig, you, you were mm-hmm. you were all that uh, and more on the Division One AA level. You did have to sit out a year, you know, for another ACL surgery. Yeah. Uh, but then you came back stronger than ever. You played really well, and in two thousand two, third round pick of the Eagles the first Villanova player drafted since Howie Long in 1981. That's crazy. Well, Villanova wasn't a football school. You know, Villanova really was a basketball school. And and I think right after Howie graduated around that time, we dropped the program. So Villanova got rid of football. And their head coach, the guy that was there uh, when I was there, Andy Talley, brought the program back, I want to say, 84, 85. And so, and he had been there for, you know, he stayed there for 25, 30 years. And so, you know, it was a program that we weren't putting out professionals. We were, we were putting out guys that went to wall street. We were putting out guys that go work for IBM and the big five accounting firms, things like that. Um, you know, I, I, I got lucky because throughout my time at Villanova, I, I won a bunch of awards and what ends up happening is that you go on these banquet circuits. And so while on those circuits, because we're right there in Philadelphia, I would see Andy Reid all the time, Donovan, you know, and Andy Reid. And ironically enough, Andy's sons, his kids, they would come watch me play on Saturdays. They're a little bit younger than me. They're middle school, high school age. They would come watch me play on Saturdays, and they would go home and tell their dad, hey, dad, we, we saw this, this kid at Villanova. He's a really good player. You should take a check, check him out. And so at one of these banquets after my senior year, I'm there, and I'm kind of just talking to Andy, picking his brain. And he goes up on the stage and is like, listen, you see that guy right there talking about me, we're going to draft that kid. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, what he, he round? He said what that at the banquet? Him? He said that at the banquet. Now, you know, it, you go to these things, and because I know Andy, I, I didn't think at that time that I that he was really being truthful. I just kind of thought he was just saying that to be, you know, a nice gesture to me. Right. Um, but it just kind of worked out well. They, they brought me in for a workout, which went just terribly. Um, John Harbaugh was a special teams coach there. And this day that they brought me in, it must have been 60 mile per hour winds. It's raining. They're like, yeah, go out there and catch punts. I'm like, it's I, nobody. I don't care who you are. No one can catch punts out here today. Um, so it ended up with him just throwing the ball up to me. And I'm just catching it like, you know, 10 yards in the air. A.J. Feely's throwing me the ball. Um, and little did I know at the time, Andy Reid, before we walk out there, we're running routes and stuff. Andy Reid tells A.J. Feely, listen. Don't throw them any good balls. Throw them all bad balls, high balls, low balls. I mean, just, I mean, it, at the time, I'm like, I don't know how this kid is in the NFL because he can't <laughs> throw very well. Like, he's not good at throwing the football. Um, and, you know, come to find out, I, I talked to AJ after I got drafted, and he was like, yeah, Andy told me to throw you all bad balls. Luckily for me, I was able to catch him, and Andy saw a spot for me on his team, um, and, and I was able to, to help him out a little bit. That's hilarious. Well, I probably made you feel better when AJ finally told you that, right? You <laughs> yeah, know, I, I did. I was wondering. I said, my, my college quarterback is better than this kid right here. I tell you that, <laughs> but it was, it was a good experience. Time for a quick break to tell you about a couple of our sponsors. The first 
is Greens Plus, a leader since 1989, known for creating the first ever blended green superfood powder and the first company to infuse that green superfood powder into a bar. Greens Plus bars and powders are the best tasting, most effective way to improve your immunity, detox your body, boost your energy, and get that nutritional insurance that your body needs from organic, gluten-free, premium green superfoods. You can get it at Whole Foods, Amazon, or greensplus.com. We're going to give you free shipping and 20% off today if you use the promo code HELLY. That's greensplus.com. Also wanted to tell you about VACO. That's V-A-C-O. At VACO, they invest in your career, so you are here for the duration of theirs. VACO is a premier talent and solutions firm that provides boutique-level service with global reach in the areas of consulting, consultative project resources, executive search, permanent placement, and strategic staffing. Areas of expertise include C-suite search, accounting, finance, technology, healthcare IT, operations, administration, and international managed services. Founded by my good buddy, Brian Waller, and a couple of his friends. In 2002, Vaco has grown to serve over 40 markets across the globe. They have 1,000 employees, 5,000 consultants, and $750 million in revenue. Check them out at Vaco.com. That's V-A-C-O.com for more info on how Vaco connects people to their dream jobs and helps leading companies find talent to grow their businesses. So, so you knew Andy a little bit uh, before you got drafted and the Eagles are coming off a, a division title back to back 11 win mm-hmm. seasons. McNabb was already established a quarterback and you enter a running back room, I believe with Deuce Daly, Corral Buckhalter, Dorsey Levins, and B-Mitch, Brian Mitchell, one of the uh, yeah. all-time great special teams players, uh, a guy that, I mean, listen, we talk about growing up a, a Washington football team fan. We both watched him and, and, and loved watching him play. What was that like walking into that running back room? You know, so so when I came into the league, it was, you know, back in the – I feel like one of these old guys. Back in the day when the <laughs> NFL was like real football. and um, But it was back in the day where, you know, the guys in the locker room, they ruled the team. And Andy allowed the guys in the locker room to run things. And so you walk in, you got B. Mitch that has been in the league. I've, I literally watched B. Mitch play when I was growing up. So I was in awe of him immediately when I walked in. Dorsey Levin, I watched him win Super Bowl out there in Green Bay. Deuce Staley, from my time in Philadelphia, everybody loved Deuce. Hardworking, hard-nosed football player would do anything. He would run, he would block, he'll catch the ball out of the backfield, do anything for your football team. Uh, Carell Buckhalter was coming off an amazing rookie season there in Philadelphia. And I don't know if you remember this guy. You remember uh, He Hate Me? You remember that? Oh, the yeah, XFL? from the XFL. He, he, was on the, he was in the running back room as well. And so not, you go in and you start to wonder, how the heck am I going to get a, any playing time here? I mean, they got, you know, a, a Hall of Famer in B. Mitch, a local legend in Deuce, and a Super Bowl winner in Dorsey Levin. Oh, and the rookie – that played well last year, Carell Buckhalter. How am I going to uh, end up getting any time here? And, you know, when I walk into that room, I'm a little bit intimidated. But I was one of these guys where I'm like, listen, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to try to gain some knowledge. And hopefully if I get an opportunity, I'm just going to be prepared and I'm going to go out there and play my best. That, that was my only thing. Just don't go out there and embarrass yourself and mess anything up. That was literally my only thing I wanted to do. 
and, and I, I talk to B. Mitch all the time, one of my one of my best friends, big brother uh, to me. And he said, you asked me so many damn questions your rookie year. And like I, he said, I couldn't get away from you because you kept asking me questions over and over and over because I was trying to understand. But why did you do this? Why did you do that? What was your thinking? What are the things that you were thinking um, when, when you were doing this, that and the other? And I, I just stuck to him like glue. That's why we're so close now, um, because I, I just I was on his hip all the time. Just wanted to know. I wanted to figure out the NFL. And it was because of veterans like himself and Ike Reese, guys that took me underneath their wing, Dawkins and McNabb and Trey Thomas and all those guys that said, listen, follow me. I'll show you the right way to do things. Um, it, it was because of those guys that when special teams practice came around, I played my belt off. I knew I wasn't going to play offense. I knew that because of that room that I was in. But I, I had a chance to contribute on special teams. I was fast. I was young. I was willing to run through a dog on the wall at the time to be able to play. And so some of those guys just took me underneath their wing and said, listen, do this, do that. And if you do those things, I know John Harbaugh will give you an opportunity to play. And he did that. I blocked for B. Mitch. I covered punts. I ran down on kickoff. I, I blocked on kickoff. I did all the dirty work that you expect rookies to be able to do. Um, and, and I did that with pride. I, that was my job. I was excited about just being on the field. Um, and, and, you know, my rookie year, it, it went great to me. I didn't play very much on offense. I think actually that first game of the year, I ended up leading the team in rushing yards. And after that, I probably didn't see the ball for the rest of the season. But I mean, on special teams wise, I played well. And I was excited just to be in the NFL. I'm just a little kid from Fort Washington, Maryland, and played at Villanova. And I'm just, I'm in the NFL. Someone, someone saw enough in me to give me a chance. I mean, I was excited about it. And my rookie year, I was just excited to play special teams. Was there a welcome to the NFL moment that you remember the most, whether it's training camp or in a game? I'm trying to, it was. So in training camp, um, usually the ones, the first team doesn't go, the first offense doesn't go against the first defense. Usually they let uh, the, the first defense beat up on the second offense. So because I was on the second offense at the time, they let the good players play with the first offense. And then me, I played with the second offense. I took all the reps, so I'm dead tired. Um, we run a play and I think somebody else had the ball. And so we're just kind of running down the sideline. I'm thinking the play is pretty much over. Um, and we're not even tackling to the ground at this point. And I see Dawkins coming and I kind of see him out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just give him a shoulder. You know, again, we're just at practice. We're not tackling. I'm gonna give him a little shoulder. And he hit me so hard. Like I, I flew into the dog on stands. And I'm like, what just hit me? Like you feel like a, a freight train just hit you. It was two hits in my NFL career. That one, and then my last game in San Francisco, um, the, the Cardinals had a, a, a safety who felt like a linebacker named Adrian Wilson. You remember him a little bit? I do, yeah. I'm talking about, he, he was just like Dawkins, about 6'2", a little bit taller, all muscles, 220. In my last game, I caught a, like a little dump off pass, and I turned around, and he clotheslined me, and I flipped, boom. And I'm laying on the ground like, oh, my God, I don't I'm glad. I am so glad this is my last game in the NFL because I can't take these types of hits anymore. But, you know, that that hit from Dawkins was my welcome to the NFL uh, type of hit. Um, all I remember seeing is that visor coming towards me and just flying. Uh, that was that was one of the hardest hits, if not the hardest hit that I ever took in the NFL. When when you got there, I'm assuming there's not a lot of media covering Villanova football. Was that pretty eye-opening for you to 
come into the locker room, you know, open locker room after practice when the media's in there. And all of a sudden there's that, that scrum of, you know, 30 people deep around, you know, Donovan or whoever else was in the locker room in terms of the star players. How, how did you handle the media early on? Well, it was, it was kind of shocking to see the amount of people that were interested in the team. And, you know, you get that amount of people because people are interested in good football teams. At the time, we went to the NFC Championship game my, my rookie year. We were a good football team. We had enough talent. You know, we ended up losing to Tampa Bay. They ended up beating Oakland in the Super Bowl. In my, in my mind, still, if we could win that doggone game against Tampa Bay, the last game in the bet, we, I would have a Super Bowl ring my, my rookie year. Um, that's what you always think. So it, it wasn't a, a bit of an adjustment. But, but again, my rookie year, nobody had a reason to talk to me. So they weren't worried about me at all as far as the media. I would go in the locker room, do my thing, change my clothes, and I would be out. I would be off to meetings. Uh, you know, so I didn't really have to worry about that too much at all. But it was a big-time shock to see the amount of media and the amount of coverage that, that the guys were getting. But again, that, that's what happens when you have a good football team. I mean, you know, people want to cover your team. People want to understand what's going on um, inside that locker room. And that, that was really my first time. And I would hear Andy Reid say this all the time. He would say, listen, these, these media people, they're not here to help us. They're here to divide us. They're here to, you know, to take us from us versus the world mentality. Anything that any type of story, they may be patting you in the back, but they're also trying to drive a wedge between teammates. That was my thought process. I, I'm listening to every word Andy Reid uh, uh, said, and I kind of adapted that. I'm like, yeah, it's us against the media. And that, that, of course, over the course of my career, that probably wasn't the right way to look at it. But as a coach, that's what you want. That's what you want your think. You your team to think. You want your team to think it's us, 53 guys. And we don't want anything to come in between us. We want to keep everything inside of the building. Um, and I learned that early on in my career um, with, with some of the things that went on my rookie year. And I kind of kept that attitude throughout my career. It probably probably didn't put me in the right place at all times, I, I would say, especially with the media. Well, you guys get – finally, you get to the Super Bowl in your third season. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl appearance for the Eagles in, in 25 years. Um, it's Jacksonville. It's the Patriots. I was there. I'll tell you what I remember most about that week was just how cold it was. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you remember most about that week leading up to the Super Bowl? Well, so there's a two-week period. So, I mean, we practiced hard that week that we stayed in Philadelphia. We practiced hard that first week. And it was almost, you know, you are just – you're going hard all season long. And then that week in between, you're like, oh, you can just kind of breathe a little bit so that you ramp it up that following week when you get to Jacksonville. And similar to you, we're, we're saying, hey, man, it's freezing cold in Philadelphia. In fact, the NFC Championship game, game we played against Atlanta, there was a blizzard the day before. So it was, you know, 20 degrees outside during that game. We're, we're saying, hey, man, we're going to Florida. And in and, and our mind, and not being a geography major, I'm thinking we're going to Miami. <laughs> right. Not, not, not uh, South Georgia. I think we're going to <laughs> Miami. And so we get down there and I got – t-shirts and shorts and I'm like what, what is this it was freezing cold just like you said that's the one thing that I remember about Jacksonville it was freezing cold I don't remember anything else about that week I remember halftime I remember before the game and after the game that's it and I remember how cold it was um and the other thing I, I'm now as I'm, I'm kind of recalling things you're there in the hotel and because you're a player you're so used to your routine 
So Monday, normally at home, you do this. You go to this spot, you have dinner, you enjoy yourself, have a glass of wine. Tuesday, same type of thing. When same type of thing. Wednesday, you go to work. Do you come home from work? You, you know, you get your body ready, you have your massage. And one of the things about Super Bowl is that, you know, you're in a, a foreign town. You are in a place where you have no friends, really. Your family's kind of there. But none of those things that you routinely do, work out and, and go to eat, you can't do those things because it's all foreign to you. And so um, you're in the hotel a lot of time, just bored. You're sitting around, sitting around, sitting around in a hotel. You have to do media. You have to go to training room. So it was a different experience, which really it speaks more to it, the more time that you have a bite at the apple to play in the Super Bowl, the more used to and comfortable you are in that atmosphere. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just a weird experience. Um, didn't have my best day in the Super Bowl. You know, we played we played the defending champs, the, the Patriots, really good football team. We had three turnovers. It might have been four. And we ended up losing by three points. So, you know, we we, we, we really killed ourselves. We kicked ourselves in the butt that game, uh, a Super Bowl that we certainly had an opportunity to win. Um, but, you know, you came up on the short end of the stick. And that it's weird how things, small things like that can change the course of your career. Because we, we thought, hey, man, we were one of the best teams in the NFL before we got to the Super Bowl. We finally get there. We lose. We think we're going to go right back the next year. And the next year we were 6-10. and 10. T.O. gets kicked off the team in the middle of the year. Things change very, very quickly in the NFL. Um, but, yeah, Jacksonville wasn't a very good experience for us at all. Can you can you get to the bottom of the Donovan McNabb-T.O. controversy in the huddle? What really happened? Oh, in the huddle? I, mean, I, I think – are you talking about during the season? During, no, I'm talking the about Bowl? the Super Bowl. I'm talking about when, when T.O. said Donovan threw up because he was hungover in, in the huddle during oh, the game. I, well, I don't believe that. I mean, I don't. I don't have anything to to, to makes me think that 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 Donovan was hungover at all. Um, I, I think Donovan was probably coughing, um, you know, running around again. You got to remember the Super Bowl is the most important game in your season. He, right. he I think Donovan might have been coughing, might have you know spit some like phlegm out, but he wasn't throwing up in the huddle at all. Um, you know, I, I don't know where all that came from, but. I think, uh, you know, th those guys don't seem to see eye to eye anymore. Even after 15 years, they still don't see eye to eye. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's one of those types of things. But I, I know on the play that, you know, in that, that whole time, I, I, I kind of remember Donovan maybe be spitting, spitting, just spitting like regular spit out. But I also remember on that same drive that he comes down and throws a dart to Greg Lewis for a touchdown. So, you can say what you want, you know, drunk or whatever, which I which I absolutely don't agree with, or spitting up, in which again I don't agree with that either. But I know that he went down and threw a touchdown, which is the most important thing uh, for a quarterback to be able to do. So I, you know, I, I don't I don't kind of feed into any of that nonsense at all. Did you was the year after the Super Bowl the year that you held out? Yep, I held out. Um, <laughs> I held out going into camp. I uh, got into camp late. And by that time, T.O. was already in his I'm ready for war mentality. He was wearing, he was wearing fatigues every day. He was wearing headphones um, every day to practice. And T.O. is a good friend. He still is a good friend of mine. I, I love T.O., man. He was one of those guys that I credit for taking my game to the next level because, you know, he comes to our team and I'm seeing a Hall of Famer and I get to watch that guy practice every day. And you can say whatever you want, anything you want about T.O., but when you talk about his ability on the football field, there, there's nobody like him. And we talk about machines. He was a machine. Healthy or unhealthy, he's out there at practice. 
His body looks like muscles with skin wrapped around it. And he's taking his game. You can see a guy getting better every single day, a guy working on his craft every single day so that on Sundays he can go out there and have 15 catches and 150 yards. We, I, I literally watch him do that every single day at practice. And so he was one of those guys that when, when he brought us, when he came to our team, I'm like, oh, I got to take my game to the next level. I need to take my practice habits, which I thought were good at the time, to the next level. But to be on his level, I got to take it up two or three notches because he was just that good, um, you know, really good teammate. It was it was one of the things that, you know, when I look back in my career that I, probably most disappointing that we weren't able to figure that out, that we had a great quarterback. We had a great receiver. We had a great defense. We had a playmaker in the backfield of myself, and we couldn't figure out how to make all those things work together for a Super Bowl. Uh, one of the biggest uh, just negatives in my career when I think about it. Cause you were, that was, that was Philadelphia's version of the triplets. That was Emmett yeah. Smith and Michael Irvin and Troy Aikman. And you guys had it. And being a Washington football team fan, I remember when T.O. went there, I'm like, oh man, I mean, this is, this is not going to be good for the burgundy and gold. And, and for a while it was, it was pretty electric. It was, it was incredible to watch um, the three of you guys operate together. Was that summer that you held out the same summer when he was doing push-ups or sit-ups in the driveway? Yeah, it was. So I get to camp, um, you know, and start working out things like that. And and Andy and Tio weren't seeing eye to eye. Tio wasn't talking to any of the coaches. He was he was upset with the coaches. Um, and I, I just kind of vaguely remember Tio and Andy getting in a yellow match, a, a screaming match, um, right there in our kind of our locker room area at training camp. And that afternoon, Andy was like, yo, he told the team, T.O.'s gone. He's going back to Philly. Maybe he'll rejoin us later. And then we get back to the dorms. We turn on the news, and T.O.'s doing sit-ups and push-ups, crunches, delivering pizzas, all types of crazy stuff in, in, in his driveway. And now you're, we're watching a saga. Remember the media, Remember the thing we I told you about the media I learned my yeah. rookie year? Now we're seeing how that media actually works now. You know, listen, you know, for, for whatever happened, the media wasn't necessarily the cause of this, but they certainly now they got to ask us. Now we got to answer the question like, hey, what's up with T.O.? What's the beef about? What's the problem? And so as a teammate, we're left to answer for, for questions that I literally had no answers for. I don't know why, when, where. I don't know any of these things. And we're kind of watching this soap opera unfold on TV. Um, it was entertaining, uh, but it was also we're watching our team and our, our our football team that just played in the Super Bowl now whittle down to a six and ten football team uh, with every sit up, uh, you know that 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 To did in that driveway. That was that had to be the best. I mean, I know you you got the furthest with that team to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. But you guys played what was it? Was it six NFC Championship games? I mean, I know a couple of them were before you got there. Five. 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 I mean, it yeah. was a it, it was a ridiculous run. Was that? the best team on both sides of the ball, the Super Bowl team in your time there? Or do you think one of those other uh, championship, NFC championship teams m- might have been better, just didn't get as far? Well, well talent-wise, that was the best team. I, that Super Bowl year, you know, we played 16 games. As starters, we probably only played in 13. Of those 13 games, uh, when we talk about a full game, four quarters, we might have played in eight or nine full quarters, you know, full game. So wow. the other four or five games, we're playing, you know, three quarters because we were blowing teams out. Offensively, we were just that dominant. 
Uh, we were putting up a bunch of points defensively. I mean, Dawkins and Lido and Sheldon and Hughes. I mean, we, we just had talent across the line um, on both sides of the ball. And so we were just dominant. We were putting up a bunch of points. The starters just didn't have to play a bunch. We were the most, probably the most well-rested team in the NFL. Um, it's just unfortunate that we couldn't keep it together for, for longer than a season. So you wrap up your Philly career in, in 09, and I believe that was the last season for for you and Donovan, right? Did yeah, you get me traded? and Donovan. Yep, yep. You got traded to Washington. Um, and, yeah, we, we, we Dawkins left the year before. And then we had one more year, um, and me and Donovan got traded the next season. Yeah, and so you're. you're I got released. Donovan got traded. You you're end up in in San Francisco. Did you know that was going to be your last year? Well, you know, after I got released, I was kind of playing the game where I was working out, but I wasn't going too hard. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to play again. I I didn't know if I was going to get another opportunity because I had been injured that last year in Philadelphia. And so I was kind of, you know, working out, but also doing a lot of stuff on my horse farm there in Maryland. Um, and I was on the farm and my agent called me. He's like, hey, man, would you ever go out to San Francisco? I was like, for what? He's like, to play for, for the 49ers. I was like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would love to go play in San Francisco. And so they flew me out. Uh, they had a, a guy, I can't remember his name now, one of the running backs, he, he retired in the middle of preseason. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I'm done. They played a preseason game. He said he wasn't coming back to practice. And so they fly me out there. I talked to Mike Singletary, who's the head coach there. A good friend of mine, Takeo Spikes, uh, was on that team. Um, and he was like, man, this is a great place to play. The players are great. It's a great team, um, great city. And he kind of sold me on it. And, and they offered me a contract. And I was like, cool, I'm staying. And so I went out there and I just ended up staying um, and, and playing for, for Coach Singletary. It was an interesting ride, and you know he, he ended up getting fired in the middle of the season. It was it was an interesting season for me out there in San Francisco. Glenn Coffee was the running back's name. Glenn Coffee, that's right, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. That, you you know I was looking at that roster in San Francisco, and first of all, you guys were not a very good team, but you had tons of talent offensively. You had Alex Smith, you had Frank Gore, Delaney Walker, yep. Ted Ginn, Crabtree, yep. Vernon Davis. And then Takeo was a little I, – I, I love Takeo. I know Takeo a little bit. I've known him for a few years. He was a little long in the tooth, right? He was an older vet. He was 34, mm -hmm, but Patrick mm -hmm. Willis. And you guys had some yep. playmakers on D, too. I, I couldn't believe that team wasn't better. We had some – I mean, listen, the 49ers went to the Super Bowl two years later Yeah, with basically the same team. You're right. That was the reason why I went out there. I remember playing against that team and like, oh, they got some talent. Um the issue was that, you know, we weren't, we weren't a very good, very well coached football team was a big part. And that's why Singletary ended up getting fired. But yeah, we had a bunch of talent on that team and, you know, it's like a corporation that just has a lot of smart people, individually smart people that can get it done. That, that just were talented. We, we had that, but we didn't have the right CEO. And, and I love Mike Singletary, one of the best, um, inspirational guys that I've been around, but you know, it, there's more than inspiration to being the head coach. You gotta, you gotta manage the weight room. You gotta manage the travel. You gotta manage the meetings. I mean, there's so many small things that, you know, I don't know that he was prepared at the time to, to, to handle as far as a head coach, but you're talking about a, a man. I mean, he was one of the best men that I've been around uh, in my days in the NFL. He just didn't, he just wasn't prepared as a head coach at that time.
how prepared were you for, for retirement? You know, I've, I've talked to so many guys over the years and become friends with so many guys over the years and everybody has their own experience with retiring in your, in your early thirties. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's unique to professional athletes. So nobody else, you know, in the world for the most part, unless they, you know, hit the lottery or something is, isn't, is retiring from one career and maybe looking for something else to do in their early thirties. What was that transition like for you to go from, you know, millionaire athlete to holy cow, I have nothing to do today. I have to figure out what I'm doing in my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so for me, you know, for, for some athletes, the game is literally taken away from you, snatched away. No one wants you. Um, I had another opportunity to go play that next year after San Francisco in, in Cleveland. And I, I told Pat Shermer, who was the head coach there at the time, I, Pat, I, I'm not coming to Cleveland. I didn't think they were very good. And I, I, didn't, I just didn't, I didn't have any football left in my body. And over the course of the last couple of years in the NFL, I knew it was coming to an end. I felt it. My body felt it. I mean, after a game, when you're young, you're recovered. Sunday, you have a game. By Tuesday, you're 100% again. Towards the end in Philadelphia, I wasn't recovered until Friday. In, in, in San Francisco, uh, by the end, I, I mean, I was recovering Saturday morning. Like, oh, okay, good. I feel good. I can go <laughs> do a walkthrough now. Um, and so I, I knew the end for me was coming to a – it was very, very near. So it, the writing was on the wall in my mind. So I had already started contemplating, what do you want to do next? What's the next thing you want to do? Um, even though I didn't have a game plan at the end there, I knew that I can always go back and be on my horse farm and just ride my horses all day if I wanted to do that. And so that was, that was my game plan. Go ride your horses, go enjoy it, and, and try to figure out things from there. Um, you know, for a lot of guys, um, the transition is tough because football has been a part of your life for pretty much the majority of your life. That's who you are as a person. Um, and for me, I, I didn't necessarily feel that football was who I was as a person. Now, of course, I played the game. I played it at a high level. But I always felt that football would play a small part in my life. I'm going to play football in my 20s and to my early 30s. And then there's going to be a next part. Hopefully, I'll find a wife. Hopefully, I'll find, you know, have some kids. Hopefully, I'll be learn how to be a dad like my dad was to me and, and play stickball in the yard and throw, play, throw the football with my kids. That was kind of my next journey. That's the next thing that I was looking for forward to in my life um so I wasn't kind of stuck on the oh what are you going to do football is there now it's taken away type of thing I was looking for that next moment in my life the next thing uh to, to happen for me and so really I went back to Maryland um after I retired and I, I just began riding horses I was at the horse farm working every day putting up fences uh you know cleaning up manure dumping stuff um doing all types of things around the farm, enjoying that with my family. My dad was there with me every day. So for, for me, it was a good moment to, to be with your family because when, when you play the game, you miss birthdays, you certainly miss holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas are out. You know, Mother's Day, you're in, train, you're in many camps. I mean, you miss so many different things that you don't realize until you're done with the game. And that first year out, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I can celebrate everything. I get to celebrate. I probably had too much family time. I get to celebrate everything with you guys. It was just a good experience for me just to be around my family who I felt like I was away from for really a lot of my adult life. So do you go back and you just go back and forth now between Brooklyn and, yeah. and your, your horse farm in Maryland? Yeah. So we spend, we spend a lot of time. The kids are in school here in Brooklyn, um, but we try to get down to Maryland and, you know, as often as we can, to, you know, unfortunately 
you know, with coronavirus, everybody, you know, we, we pray for all the families and things like that for the sick people. The good thing for us is that we were able to get out of Brooklyn and spend almost all, you know, from March 2020 until September of 2020 in Maryland. So the kids were able to go to the horse farm and ride and run around and enjoy it there. My wife was able to take horse riding lessons. And I, I literally watched my kids and my wife fall in love with horses the way that I fell in love with them 15 years ago. So th that was really, really cool for me um, to experience. And, and, and fortunately for, for me at the time, I was able to kind of still do my job. You know, we're, we're kind of doing everything over Zoom like we're doing here. I was still able to go talk about football um, and, and, and stay up on the draft and different things that was going on in the NFL as well. So you're doing right now you're doing Fox. Um, what else are you doing? Well, give us give us a little plug. Yeah. So um, two days a week, I'm on First Things First, which is on Fox Sports One mm -hmm. with Brandon Marshall, Nick Wright and Jenna Wolf. Uh, so I'm a contributor there, analyst there. We're talking about football, uh, all different types of things there. And Kevin Wiles as well. Um, I'm also doing, uh, you know, I, I did a pregame show on 97.5, The Fanatic in Philadelphia. I'm a contributor there as well. I'm on there. I have a show on, on, on 97.5 every single week uh, there. Um, you know, so I, I enjoy talking about football. And, you know, and throughout the season, I'll go on different networks just talking about the game. So I, every week I'm literally talking about football. I also was a co-host on the Adam Lefko podcast on Bleacher Report uh, throughout the season as well. Um, so, so that's kind of the football stuff. I, I, I enjoy the football stuff. I, probably the, my love is just being around the kids all day long. My kids are still young. So my, my, my oldest is in second grade. I'm taking her to school every single day. I, I love that. And my two young kids, they're home with me every day. So it's like, <laughs> it's, it's bargaining, you know, it's trying to make a deal. Let's make a deal with them all day long. Uh, do you want candy today or do you want to listen to daddy? Which one do you want to do? Uh, <laughs> So it's, it's one of those things every single day for me. And you're, and you're a big investor, right? I mean, you're, you're, on, yeah. you're on venture capital calls before this podcast. What, is there anything yeah. you can talk about? What are some, what are some big projects? Well, well, there, there are two things. So I, I, I got into the venture capital world. It's a space. I, as I was in business school, when I was at Villanova, I got my executive business degree at Wharton over there at UPenn while I was in the NFL. Um, and so I've always been business minded. But what happens, you play in the NFL for nine years and all those guys you went to college with, they've been in working for 10 years and all the stuff that you learned in college, all that stuff is obsolete. So you really have no knowledge. And so for me, it was important that, you know, I had accountants working for me. I had business managers working for me and I knew I had no clue what the heck they did. And so it was important for me to go back after I retired to learn everything about all my businesses, all my business ventures. I wanted to learn everything about it. So I spent time with my accountant. I spent time with my money managers. I spent time with the people that I was doing investments with just to learn what they actually did for me instead of just sending them checks. And, and, and I wanted to know what you do for me. And so I spent a lot of time there. That kind of led me to 76 Capital. And it's a venture capital firm. Uh, we invest in sports tech, um, esports, uh, sports, uh, you know, gambling, um, you know, as, as well. Um, but we look for, for companies that are innovative, companies that are looking towards a future uh, that, that are involved with sports. That's something that, we, that I know very well and love. Um, just recently, it's going to be announced here in the next couple of days, um, I've, I'll be announced the chair of the Athlete Venture Group, which is a group that goes out there and tries to provide knowledge to athletes, entertainers, uh, influencers, 
because what has happened is we get presented with deals every day, every day. Hey, you invest in my business. Here's a deal. And a lot of times, because we played football for the last 10 years or we were in sports or entertainment, we have no way to bet these deals. We don't know what the heck we're talking about. We're not in business. I mean, it takes some of the best business minds to be able to vet some of these deals. And sometimes they get it wrong. 70% of the time they get it wrong. Um, so this group is involved. So we can teach you the language. You know, I used to sit in these meetings and I'll be like, I have no clue what these guys are talking about because I didn't speak that the business language. So, let, so we go out and we teach the, the, the guys and the girls the language. What's going on? What's a safe note? What's a good investment? What's a bad investment? What's the language that the people are talking? What's, what's going on in the business world right now? Let me bring me your deals. We'll look at your deals and we'll say, okay, we're not going to tell you to do it or not, but we'll tell you the risk. What are the risks of this deal? What are the good things about this deal? And the other thing we'll do is provide some case studies and we'll say, hey, here's a deal that came across the desk in 2015. We thought this was a good deal for these three reasons. And it was a good deal. It made a bunch of money. Great. We thought this deal was a bad deal. Oh, you know what? We missed on this one. This deal actually made money too. So, I mean, we're giving examples so that we can grow our young entrepreneurs that just haven't had that knowledge, that ability to learn those things in the spaces that they've had, but they got a bunch of money. They, they need to be able to be helped. And so that, that's where I'm kind of at there. Um, and, and I love, I love that space. I love the business space. I love learning. I love finding good businesses to invest in. We're doing that as well. Investing in businesses. Um, I, I've been blessed uh, to become a scout with Lightspeed, Lightspeed Venture Partners. And so Lightspeed is probably one of the biggest venture uh, firms in the world. They're out there in California too. And what we do, they gave me 250,000 bucks. They said, listen, you go find any companies that you want, startup companies, and you invest in those companies. And so now all the knowledge that I was able to accumulate over the years, now I'm going out and finding these companies, I'm betting these companies, and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to write you a $50,000 check. I'm going to write you a $100,000 check so that now you can have money to start your business, and hopefully we'll all make money. So I, I've been lucky to be able to get into that um, as well. So, you know, the business side has been really, really good to me throughout the time that I've, I've kind of got into those ventures. But, but Dan, I, I do want to tell you about this before we go. The one thing that kind of moves the needle for me um, is my foundation. And, and, and again, I, I have a, a love for horses and the foundation is really set up around that love. I believe that um, we have to give our children some incentive, the carrot. What's the carrot? What's the thing that they should be chasing? And for our kids, maybe it's the horses. Maybe it's a chance to hang around professional athletes. But I believe that once we get them in, now we can teach them about resume building. Now we can teach them about financial planning and real estate planning. Now I can teach these kids that are, are, are heading from high school to college that, you know what, when you sit down for a business lunch, this is not about eating. This is not about feeding your face. This is about giving information and receiving information. And oh, by the way, this is your fork right here. This is your knife right here. This is your bread. This is your water. These are simple things that um, unfortunately some of our kids don't have the knowledge of. The other thing, and I think this kind of speaks even volumes when the coronavirus hit, we're teaching our kids, you know, you may not want to be an electrician. Let me teach you about electrical work because maybe one day you might just need to be able to be handy with your kids, your hands. Let me teach you about carpentry. Let me teach you vocational training so that if things just go bad and whatever you're doing, you always have something to fall back on. And, and guess who wasn't out of business? There was no, no mechanics out of business during this quarantine. 
The carpenters were still doing stuff. Electricians were still doing things. And it may be a little bit slower, but they still were working. Um, and so these are the things that we're trying to teach our kids. We're trying to teach them that there is an equation to success. Hard work plus discipline plus sacrifice will equal success in anything that you do, whether it's football, whether it's uh, you know being a doctor, whether it's being a, a, a trash man. All that, that's the simple equation for success. Um, unfortunately, a lot of our kids have the idea that if you make a million bucks, you're successful. And I'm teaching them like, listen, you can make a million dollars and be unsuccessful. All you have to do is spend a million and one dollars. You do that, <laughs> right. you're unsuccessful. But if you make $50,000, you pay all your bills, you save $5,000, you're a success. Try to be that. Don't try to be this famous football player. That's rare. That's not going to happen for a lot of us. But if you can find a way to carve out a living and make yourself happy for yourself and your family, that's a success in our eyes. And that's what we're trying to teach these kids through our foundation. What, what's the name of the foundation, B-West? The Brian Westbrook Foundation. Yep. Okay. Brian Westbrook Foundation. So we try to keep it simple so that everyone can remember it. Well, for, especially for dummies like me. I mean, if, if <laughs> Brian Westbrook, B-West, I'll remember that, baby. There you go. Hey, man, I appreciate the time. I kept you longer than I anticipated, but you're just so good. So many great stories. Um, everybody check out the Brian Westbrook Foundation. One of my favorite guys that I've ever worked with. We miss you on the Fantasy Zone, buddy. That was, man, those trips was, to New York, hanging out with you up there in that studio with the those chef. Those were good that times. Was, that was so fun, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was a good times. We'll, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. Talk soon. 